This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering five conversations from episode 36, in which first-time guest and Anglo-Australian hepatologist James O'Byrne joins Louise Campbell, old friend Naeem Alcori, and me to discuss James's recent Locate Naples study to evaluate strategies for and the value of recruiting high-risk referrals through primary care practices, plus a vault episode from last November addressing the psychology of diet decision-making. This conversation focuses largely on funding, starting with Louise Campbell asking about Medicare payments for patients in Australia. Medicare being the payment system there. James O'Byrne notes that all care was free to patients and that this might skew results. As the conversation continues, Louise Campbell notes the importance for Australians of having Australian data to use in valuing medicines, diagnostics, and procedures, given that NICE analyses rely exclusively on UK data and that Australians like NICE. She goes on to ask about the quality of referrals from primary care, which leads James to note that some primary care practitioners provide better data and novel referrals, while others appeared overwhelmed by the data in the process. I asked the group how geographic dispersion will affect referrals as hepatologists push into primary care relationships. James suggests that geography is a challenge, which leads Naeem Alcori to comment that an inexpensive handheld device can be helpful, maybe even pivotal, to mass screening, and that blood tests should be part of the mass screening armamentarium. James, and then Louise, replied that nurses and some practitioners see imaging as a therapeutic event rather than simply a value of test. It becomes an opportunity to engage the patient in a discussion of their numbers and how to improve their lifestyles. As the conversation winds down, James and Naeem mentioned concerns about the consistency of reads and Louise, then Naeem, provide tips on how a treater can get more accurate and consistent measurements using FibroScan. This podcast does not report much on study from Australia, which is an environment with some unique challenges that other developed markets would do well to study more and understand better. This episode and its conversation covered parallels between Oz and the Western countries, and as a result, items the Western markets can take away when reviewing these results. It's quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. So how did you get over the Medicare issue? Because it's not Medicare refundable. So therefore, are the patients paying or are you paying per scan as part of the trial? James O'Byrne. Well, this was part of a trial. The patients don't pay anything. That's one problem. I suspect if FibroScan was ever Medicare rebatable, then you'd probably find that every private gastroenterologist in Australia would have a FibroScan machine. But it's not. So that's why it's traditionally been limited to the public hospitals, which obviously that then restricts access, So that's one of the reasons why we developed this model. So the patients didn't pay anything and we didn't try and get any rebate from Medicare. Roger Green. Clearly, if you're doing a 10-day versus 266-day follow-up, you should find a significant difference. Does the model set up to start to do a better job of calculating where the sweet spot might be economically? I think I'll leave that to Dr. Brain, who's our um, health economist, beautifully named Dr. Brain. It is a great name. It's the second David (laughs) Brain I've read of in my life. And the two people I've read of who are in my public life who are named Brain, both first name with David. That's a coincidence, but go figure. Because obviously when you start to work out, the UK has just made a significant investment in creating scanning in public centers to increase the frequency of scanning. But uh, I'm figuring that the results of this study will actually have a lot to do with how Australia decides to proceed on that. We hope so. And I think that's why it was funded by the NHMRC, because I think they wanted an answer to this question as well. I think it's important because there's not a lot of Australian-based studies that give us the data. It's one of the things that I hear a lot in WA, but where's the Australian data? It's a lot 
as James will know, that NICE, it's only English data that is considered. So I think it's important to prove the level of NAFLD in Australia, the associated conditions, because three of their biggest conditions are alcohol, cardiovascular and diabetes. And now we know they're all intrinsically linked. So anything that we can tease out of that study in Australia will evidence base for the politicians and the primary care. But just thinking of primary care, you did mention that you received a few more referrals from primary care as a follow up. Do you think that's because they were better educated because of the information that was being sent back? And now, and were they sending you better, more accurate patients rather than others? Yes and no. We did see some uptick in quality referrals, but not as many as I would really like to have seen because, you know, when we pretty much had patients coming from every sort of local practice and with the information that we sent back, you know, was quite robust and thorough. I guess maybe we overwhelmed some of the primary care practitioners, but we did see some people coming back with specific requests. I've got this patient, I think they've got fatty liver, they've got steatosis, can they have a fibrous scan? That's great. Some were, we were still getting some uh, referrals from the same practices that were sort of, you know, I've got this patient with a ferritin of 500 and a mildly abnormal ALT, it's got a BMI of 38, please can you see them? I don't know what's going on. And that was sort of slightly disappointing in a way. It's interesting because Predictive Health, who analysed data, would say that only 10% of abnormal liver function tests and people picked up are actually acted on by primary care. So you're you're the tip of the iceberg. And then, and then we know from our diabetic studies that you can have completely normal ALT and have significant fibrosis in the setting of type 2. So to all of you, one of the questions is kind of sticking in the back of my head as I listen to all this is about geographic dispersion. That one of those that makes Australia different from the UK or the US or most of the US is the vast size and the relatively small number of people. So, you know, so James, we made the comment that every private gastroenterologist in the company country would have a fiber scan. I'm wondering what the effects of geography are in terms of implementing the results of a study like this. And Naeem, I'm looking at you also because you've got a location in Ohio and a location in Arizona. And Arizona is Phoenix, Tucson, and a lot of, a lot of dusty road between the two. Uh, the Cleveland area is a lot more geographically compact. So uh, I'm kind of wondering, particularly as we start to push into primary care, what the impact of geography will be on all this. Anybody have a thought on that? It's a real problem. So when we did our hepatitis C work, we were very lucky to have a an absolutely fantastic nurse attached to the project who would drive up to Bundaberg and do like fibroscan clinics in community clinics for patients with hepatitis C and then stay overnight in nurses' accommodation at Bundaberg Hospital and then drive back the next day with the mobile fibroscanner in the back of her car. Uh, you can't expect that of most normal people. So for the purposes of the of the NAFLD, we, we're not going to be able to do that. Um, uh, but I would have thought that if having proven that the intervention sort of shortens the time to diagnosis and seems to be good for patients, then, you know, there is no reason why a nurse based in Bundaberg or wherever it be, 800 kilometers away, can't do these clinics and then feedback the results to a hepatologist remotely for decision making in a sort of MDT type fashion. And then they feedback the final results to the primary care physician. So, yeah, no, the, the, the geography is challenging. And, you know, I used to think that looking after patients post liver transplant was difficult, but uh, you want to try and look after people with diuretic refractory ascites who live in a caravan park 400 kilometers away. That's real challenging hepatology. Yeah, brutal was the word that came to mind. Naeem, you made a comment before I'm interested in, in that it, it seems to me that in the situations James just described, the easier the technology is to train and get consistent results on, the better off we're going to be. So you mentioned Velocure and Escopics as, as, as options or, or basic ultrasound. It, it feels to me that in that setting, one of the things to evaluate the different technologies on is how easy is it to train to consistency. 
because you're not going to have a lot of supervision. Does that sound right? Naeem Al-Khuri. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's nice to have these dedicated people that do all these heroic efforts to travel the country and sleep five hours a night. But this is not sustainable for a disease that affects, you know, 30, 35 percent of the population. So we need the simple technology that's cheaper. I mean, the cost of the fiber scan machine has been one of the biggest hurdles. And I think we need a handheld device that costs between maybe five to eight thousand dollars that you can actually give to most primary care offices, uh, something that will give you consistent results. And then you can do this mass screening and then blood test. I mean, you can do a blood test anywhere. We have to keep this in mind that, you know, we can't rely on imaging only. So all, all that makes sense to me. And I guess by definition, liquid biopsy is, well, let me ask, how much more consistent are the results of liquid biopsy compared to imaging? So that if what we're talking about is being able to get consistent results out of populations that where the density doesn't speak to having a lot of physicians, can we get that better out of an IS-2 or out of an ELF that we can out of an uh, imaging machine? I mean, I think a blood test is possibly more scalable than an imaging machine. It depends on the availability. ELF is not a cheap test at this point in the United States, so it has limitations and it doesn't work in all patient populations. It's affected by things outside of the liver. So I think we need everything. We need every tool that we have. It's not going to be just one machine or one blood test, but I think we need the combination. I agree. I mean, ELF isn't uh, funded here. I mean, I've got some experience with ELF and it's helpful, but as you say, all of these tests have their own limitations and caveats. The one thing, though, about a blood test, and maybe Louise will comment on this, is that the process of doing a fibre scan, that interaction with the patients, nurses will often report that it's a therapeutic intervention as well as just getting a result. So it's the real-time interpretation of what that result means for that particular patient. You can show where they are on a chart in terms of what their CAP score means. So I think there's a bit more value added to a fibre scan or imaging technique than just a blood test. No, I think you're right. And we discuss that here all of the time. And everybody who uses it knows that it's a brief intervention. It's not coded. It's not costed as a brief intervention. But if you use somebody who's highly skilled and and particularly your hepatology nurses were, and I think that's where we operate from, it's about the information and the moment because you can see the moment in the eyes. You can know what they're going to say. But to have that interaction, and I think if we're looking at sustainability as well, it is easier to take a fibre scan to Bundaberg than it is to bring a dozen patients down from Bundaberg. It's easier to do these things and we are now moving into sustainability and how we do that. The ability to turn around clinics quite quickly is a positive. I think upskilling and I think Ecosense would say that the most densely populated fibre scan per head of the population is in Australia because of course most of the population sit on the east coast. Most of the centres are in Sydney, Brisbane. So density of population per head and for fibre scans Australia is the biggest well provided um, than anywhere else in the world I think that may well still be the case but it's about how often do they get used your trial didn't use continuous cap and it didn't use smart depth which makes it better for people of larger skin to capsule distance because it measures deeper you get a better and a more accurate reading these days so there are technology advances that can bring fibre scan better but none of the trials currently have used that I'm aware of Naeem will know more that have used um, continuous cap and smart exam so all of the evidence that we're currently looking at are older machines with poorer technology but we can put them in anywhere and it is about the skill set that goes in there and that's the one thing that surprised me about the evidence that you've related that only 77% success rate in a clinic in a hospital against 95 I think you said about 99% 99% which is what I would expect to get if you're a specialist nurse or highly skilled in that test you shouldn't be removing the tests you shouldn't 
not be able to get them. Yeah, you're right. And we mentioned other imaging techniques and other forms of elastography. I don't know whether other people have this experience, but I find that there's a hell of a lot of variability in when elastography results I get from shear wave and other techniques when I compare them to what I consider the reference, which is Fibroscan. I don't know whether other people have had that experience. So Naim, I'd love for you to comment on that. Yeah, definitely. I get this consult, I would say, once a week where someone had an ultrasound with elastography and they're told they have advanced fibrosis, sometimes cirrhosis, and then we do the Fibroscan and we get low values for liver stiffness, like five or six. And then it becomes a question in my mind, well, which technology is more accurate? I cannot tell the patient that my Fibroscan is definitely better than, you know, we start looking at the entire clinical picture from the platelet count to the FIP4 to the spleen size. And usually I do another test like L for MR elastography. And then if I have two NITs pointing in the same direction, I tend to believe the two consistent ones and this disregard the one that is an outlier. But to be honest with you, I think it's more operator dependent. So this is a bigger issue for me in Arizona compared to my previous location in Texas. So uh, it is a common uh, scenario that we deal with. I think people have to remember the position of the liver when they take a fibro scan or a shear wave. If you are towards the upper end, so the top or to the bottom, the liver is stiffer. So you can actually find stiffer tissue depending on where uh, positional. So you are trying to get a fibro scan in the middle portion of the liver. And to be fair, if I get a stiff reading to start, I will try and move that fibro scan down because what I'm looking for is the consistent soft tissue. If it's hard all over, then that's consistent. But actually, if I think if a smoker, their lungs push their livers further down, it is not just point and shoot first time on somebody you've never scanned before. You do have to take all of that into consideration, but you are trying to find the middle portion of the liver, which is a consistent elasticography rather than the outer margins of a liver, which are going to be stiffer. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for saying this because although we think of Fibroscan as operator independent, uh, it is indeed, you know, operator dependent. The experience of the operator is very important. And the goal is not to get 10 measurements with an IQR of 29%. The goal is, as you said, to scan the liver, find a good spot, take your time and not shy away from not taking measurements that are not consistent enough. And then also one thing we learned is that the patient needs to lay down for about three to five minutes before you do the fiber scan. If you just lay them down and start measuring, you may overestimate a little bit. This laying down for a few minutes allows the whole circulation to recalibrate and you get a more accurate measurement. And of course, the fasting piece and not cutting corners. I mean, we tell people to fast for about three hours. We allow some water, maybe black coffee, but uh, I've seen people have a big lunch and it's like two and a half hours and everyone is eager to get the fiber scan. Why? Like just say, okay, we can't do it today. Come back another day when you're fasting and get an accurate measurement. So just keeping all these things in mind and just realizing that these results will have great implications and may lead to unnecessary testing. So I'd rather repeat the scan or just do it another day than get, you know, high values that are not accurate. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with another challenging topic. Till then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing Nash.